that really makes me get up in the morning and, and go to work with a smile is the fact that as a company we deliver energy to 170 million people every day so that the work of me and my colleagues actually enables them to travel, to drive, to cook, to create and I just find that that's a very motivating uh, sort of value proposition to be part of. We have put fiber optics on the wells and uh, so that we're able to um, track uh, the data in real time and we can also get sound and temperature data from the well. I do believe that without technology there is no progress. We just have to be conscious about how we apply technology and how we strike that balance between humanity and technology. Turn off the phones once in a while and focus on what's right in front of us. This is CRNet TV. My name is Hendrik Deckers. I'm here today with also Hanna Larsen, who is the VP Subservice Excellence and Digital at Equinor in Norway. A very warm welcome also. Thank you very much, Hendrik. It's great to be here with you today. Also, you have a master's degree in languages and education from the Bielefeld University in Germany and an MBA from Harriet Watt University in Scotland. You started your career at Statoil in 93 as a catering assistant and then you worked many years in HR functions. You became the corporate CIO in 2015 and in 2021 you took the role of VP Subservice Excellence and Digital. So also tell us a little bit more about this amazing career. Who are you? Uh, what's your background and how did you arrive in this position? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> Maybe I can start with some fun facts, Hendrik, so you get a feel for who I am because um, I am actually a Coke Zero addict. You will probably see later in this interview that I will pull a can out. Uh, I read about 200 books a year. None of them almost are work-related. I tend to prefer space and um, uh, witches and uh, werewolves and that kind of thing. And uh, another perhaps interesting fact about me is that I once convinced 250 people to join a book club uh, within six weeks so that mm -hmm. I could get a free trip to Greece. <laughs> So that's me in short, in fun facts at least. And, and tell us about your career. I mean, you, you started as a catering assistant? I did, in fact, uh, out in the North Sea. And I have to say that I still meet occasionally people who uh, I have made uh, beds for or emptied waste baskets for. So mm -hmm. um, it uh, it's, was an interesting period. I was there for six years and I learned a lot uh, about the sort of the core of what makes this company work and the energy industry and the, what it means to Norway. So um, I wouldn't have been without those six years offshore. I can promise you that. Okay. And then you went into HR. What kind of functions did you do there? Everything from corporate HR, leading lots of different corporate projects on people deployment, career development, title structure, you name it, I did it. And I also uh, went out into the business and uh, was the head of HR in two of the technology areas in Equinor, first exploration and then technology projects and drilling. And it was when I was in that last job uh, in my fourth year there that I was actually asked to be a candidate for the CIO role. Okay, because you, you have a quite, let's say, a peculiar background <laughs> to have a role as, as, as the corporate CIO in 2015. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I can promise you I did not expect that phone call. 
<laughs> I didn't see myself as, as a potential CIO, but uh, they called and asked me if I wanted to be on the list. I went home, I discussed it with my husband. We laughed about it and said, yeah, sure, let's put you on the list. It's going to be a very long list, so it's never going to happen. But uh -huh. suddenly, after a couple of weeks, they called me and said they wanted to offer me the job. And um, okay. then I had to say yes. And so what is it that made you special that they selected you as, as, as HR, uh, top uh, HR and, and, and moved to uh, top, uh, top IT? I think what they wanted at the time was someone who could be a translator between the business and IT. Because mm -hmm. at that point in time, when I became CIO, IT was really more sort of viewed as a cost, as a commodity, something that was useful to have, but it wasn't perhaps strategic. Mm -hmm. So there was something there. And uh, if you ask one of my brothers, I have uh, by uh, a weird stroke of fate, they have three brothers who all have an mm -hmm. IT degree and work in IT. Mm -hmm. And I actually called one of them uh, when I was uh, told that I would have the role. And I asked him, do you want to know who's going to be the new CIO of Equinor? I thought it could be useful for you because you're in the, you're in the business. So maybe yeah. it's a good thing. And he said, yeah, sure, tell me all about it. And I said, it's me. And what I got then was uh, 30 seconds of intense silence before he said the following. You know, Osil, maybe they know that you have three brothers who are very qualified in IT. <laughs> maybe they think this is sort of a four for one kind of deal. I have forgiven him for that. And, and nowadays they actually call me and ask me for uh, IT and technology advice once in a while. So it's balanced out. <laughs> okay. What a special way to get into this uh, in, in, into this part of the business. So, Asil, tell us a little bit the, the Statoil background. Statoil, Equinor, tell us a little bit more about the business, about the rebranding and so on. And, and, and what's really the driver of change for the business today? Sure. And 2022 is actually a very special year for us because it's our 50th anniversary. We were founded mm -hmm. back in 1972. Uh, a CEO and a couple of people and uh, the entire cash balance in a cigar box in, a, uh, <laughs> in an office somewhere in downtown Stavanger. Mm -hmm. But I think what, is, what we have been recognized for all along has been this willingness to uh, develop and apply technology. We're very uh, technology heavy and see that as a key enabler. Right now, I would say the business drivers and the situation we're in is very much um, colored by the fact that we're in a transition to becoming a broad international energy company, building up mm -hmm. a big renewables and low carbon business to be able to realize our ambition of uh, being a net zero company by 2050. But okay. to be honest, Hendrix, what really makes me get up in the morning and, and go to work with a smile is the fact that as a company we deliver energy to 170 million people every day so that the work of me and my colleagues actually enables them to travel to drive to cook to create and mm. i just find that that's a very motivating uh, sort of value proposition to be part of so uh, i love my job uh, and how big is the company in, in number of people in, I don't know, in revenue and so on? We have 22,000 employees, or 21 actually right now, uh, across mm -hmm. about 30 countries. So uh, we're yeah. quite a sizable organization. So Equinor is all about oil, it's all about gas. It's, uh, can you explain a bit more the different business functions? Sure. We do have uh, a number of business areas. One is... Uh, 
uh, exploration and production on the Norwegian continental shelf, which, as you say, mm -hmm. focuses mainly on uh, discovering and exploring for uh, oil and gas and then producing mm -hmm. that oil and gas. We have uh, a marketing and midstream and processing unit that helps process and sell uh, the products. We also have a big technology unit that I'm sure we'll talk about as well, because uh, yep. that has a lot to, of bearing on today's main subject. And we have uh, an international unit, which looks at the international portfolio. But we also have a big uh, renewables effort where mm -hmm. we are both uh, active within offshore wind, solar, and we do a lot actually within the marketing midstream and processing unit when it comes to low carbon, for instance, carbon capture and storage. So it's quite mm -hmm. the broad portfolio where we, of course, we build on our history as an, with a Norwegian heritage and a strong, strong sort of oil and gas component, which given mm -hmm. the situation around the world today with uh, the focus of energy security is critical for Europe actually. But we do focus a lot on expanding and competing within the renewables and low carbon areas as well. So hence my reference to the transformation that we're into a really broad energy company. Yeah. And so you changed job in 2021 and you became the VP for subservice, mm. excellence and digital. Tell us a little bit what that, what that business unit does and, and what your function is in there. Yeah, maybe I should first say, Henrik, that uh, in 2021, we did a big reorganization of the entire mm -hmm. company. So uh, we, uh, for instance, uh, gathered digital IT and R&D together in technology, digital and innovation, which is a big sort of technology muscle in the company, a technology powerhouse, we like to call it, uh, under the leadership of a chief technology officer. But we still have IT areas out in the business as well. Uh, we also uh, established or gathered subsurface uh, into one subsurface, but split across two business areas. And my accountability within subsurface is, as you said, for excellence in digital. That may sound a bit cryptic, but it's basically most of the things that go across the subsurface. So I'm responsible for all the digital projects, the entire improvement portfolio, the whole toolbox for the subsurface, technology implementation of all the technologies coming out of uh, R&T or TDI. Mm -hmm. I also have the responsibility for the entire professional pipeline for the subsurface and the quality assurance function along the value chain. So uh, it's an interesting job that also covers data and information. And of course, being an energy company, the subsurface data constitutes a large chunk of the data that Equinor actually owns and, and manages. And in addition to that, uh, I am placed in uh, Exploration and Production International. So in addition to that horizontal, I actually have a vertical as well, because I uh, have the accountability for the IT function in uh, EPI, as we call it. Okay. So it's a fun job, fairly broad. <laughs> I can imagine. So let's talk a little bit about the, the main programs that you have been working on for the last, uh, last year or last couple of years. Uh, so you told me that you have been building uh, a, a very important data lake. And, and so can you explain a little bit how that works? and how that also fits in, in the complete data program of the company? Sure, what I should say to begin with though, is that this has been my and the team's accountability for about a year. 
But mm -hmm. before that, of course, this portfolio has been built up over a long time. So I just want to underline that there are lots of my colleagues who have contributed into the digital portfolio subsurface and uh, who deserve the credit for where we are today. Yeah. But you are, you are quite right, data is an important part of it. And, and just to give you a bit of corporate context, back when I was CIO, we did see that liberating and creating value from data, regardless of where in the value chain it was created, was going to be a competitive advantage for us. Uh, mm -hmm. And so we made a bet at that point in time to develop uh, a data platform that we chose to call Omnia, which in Latin means everything because it was in intended to cover the entire value chain. And we built it mm -hmm. uh, mainly on Azure, but with some open source uh, as well. And part of that uh, Omnia on top of it is the subsurface data lake. It is really designed to gather all the data, both from exploration and petroleum technology into one data lake so that it's accessible uh, to enable us to make better decisions within the subsurface. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, we run a number of solutions to utilize the data. Mm -hmm. So uh, it really is um, a key, it was a key step for us to get that in place and to be able to, uh, to utilize the data in new ways. I think okay. I can mention perhaps one uh, solution that runs on top, which is the Reservoir Experience Platform. There we mm -hmm. have been able to gather data from five, six uh, different uh, silos into one application, which actually makes it so much easier for the people who are using the data because suddenly they have an interactive digital well book with all of that data available. They avoid all of that context switching that occurs when you move between all of these systems. And I have to say, it's probably the only time in my life where I have seen the Paytech petroleum technology community in Equinor uh, actually applaud something that came out of the IT function. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, a very, uh, important thing to us and it has given us a lot of business value as well uh, measured in uh, quite a significant amount of million US dollars so uh, okay. so for us for, for us that are not in oil and gas this is about mm -hmm. finding the right spots to drill or I mean is exploring where is the oil where is the gas and and is, is that the purpose of uh this exercise? Well, basically what we do as a business is we explore for oil and gas as part of, of uh, our scope. When you do mm -hmm. that, of course, we uh, do that mainly uh, underwater, offshore. So you have to then, when you find a reservoir, you have to understand what the reservoir looks like. Uh, so you have to have seismic to see that. You then mm -hmm. have to decide where do you want to put the wells to get the optimal recovery from that reservoir based on pressure and some things like that. Mm -hmm. So all of that, of course, gives us a lot of data uh, on the different prospects around the world. And it's that data that is visualized in the subsurface data lake and the reservoir experience platform is just one tiny bit, an application that runs on top that gives you an interactive well book. And so the 
users of this application, your colleagues that use this, are the engineers that, that do study, they, they do the R&D on, on the oil. Where's the oil, where's the gas, how do we get it out there in the most effective way, right? So doing, so having the right data lake, do the data mining for, for the, uh, so that you can do the right exploration and, and uh, exploitation is, I can imagine, uh, imagine very, very important. Tell us a little bit uh, about, you said ex uh, exploitation of data. Uh, I can imagine that's understanding, doing an analytics on that, visualizations I can imagine as well. Is there also an artificial intelligence component uh, in, uh, in there as well? Yeah, it's a good question that you ask. We actually have um, a project that we call AIM. It's uh, mm -hmm. short for Artificial Intelligence Maturation, where we use gaming AI and gaming technologies to uh, design the optimal wells. Mm -hmm. and the trajectory of those because when you know when you when you have a, identified a reservoir you've figured out where is the oil or gas you have to decide where to put the well and what trajectory to drill mm -hmm. and uh, what um, that technology does is help the engineers who previously used to have to do all this well planning manually to do this in an automatic way because this, the technology actually manages to design and test from start to finish millions of different uh, well trajectories. So the mm -hmm. role of the engineer then in many ways becomes to just look at the recommended uh, trajectories from the tool and select the one that they think is the most optimal for that well. And the users are really pleased with this and they report back that um, this creates a lot of saved time, improved efficiency, uh, less cost, but also less risk because they are able to design around potential safety issues. Mm -hmm. So again, it's really a project where we've already seen a lot of wins and we see a huge potential going forward. Okay. And so can I imagine, I, I imagine this a little bit like a waste application. I want to go from, from here uh, and, and, and find the oil and then it optimizes the route to, uh, to the oil, to the gas, right? Is that a, in, in, a, in, a very, in a very simplified <laughs> manner, I guess you could tell, you could call it that, yes, Henrik. So we're talking about your digital portfolio and, and so building the data lake, exploiting that and, 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 and the AIM project are two important uh, pillars in there. Uh, what, what other projects are uh, important in the, in the current portfolio? One of my personal favorites is um, a project on, that we have on fiber optics where we've, we have put fiber optics on the wells mm -hmm. and, uh, so that we're able to um, track uh, the data in real time and we can also get sound and temperature data from the well. Mm -hmm. And of course, this data is important to us uh, the big change from before is that it used to take um, two to three weeks to get to that data because it was gathered offshore. You had to actually send someone out with a helicopter to pick it up and then fly oh. it back to shore. Now yeah. we have it uh, almost instantaneously, which is a big difference. And the fact that we can measure temperature, pressure, all of those things... Uh, means that we also uh, have uh, 
uh, the opportunity to prevent safety incidents. Because, for instance, if there's a leakage in the well, that will be detected and we're able to stop it. So it has both a big safety component, but also, of course, a, a financial and cost savings component. Mm -hmm. And I think it's cool to, to think about that the date that we get <laughs> from that is the equivalent of about 10,000 Netflix movies per minute. So it's a huge, huge um, thing. Okay. So this um, fiber optics connection from the platforms to offshore to, uh, to onshore allows you to do a kind of real-time uh, data twin or digital twin of, of, of the platforms? Yeah, not really a digital twin, but what the aim of all of this is, is to go from a, a condition where we constantly have to monitor the data to be, be in a situation where the data actually tells us when we have to look, when something is wrong, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Okay, so you can listen to the pumps and so on and, and see if something could go wrong, is that... Is that the aim that you can, if you have this real-time information, that you can do almost like preemptive maintenance in, uh, in a, like in a way. production company? In a way. That uh, if, if the data tells, if the data discovers, for instance, that there's a leak in the well or there's a change in temperature or pressure, we yep. will get informed about that and can take the appropriate action. Okay, very good. Let's talk a little bit about how IT and digital are today organized in, uh, in Equino. What's the overall uh, IT operating model and, and, and what's your uh, operating model in, uh, in subservice? Sure, I touched upon it, uh, Hendrik, but as part of that big corporate reorganization, one of the things that our CEO, uh, Anders Uppedal, was uh, eager to put in place was what he called the technology powerhouse. So one of the choices he made as part of the design was to uh, put together digital, IT and R&D into one big organization and have that uh, report to a chief technology officer that is part of the executive committee. So that means that we don't actually have a CIO role as such uh, in the company anymore. The totality of this meets uh, in the chief technology officer role. But we still have uh, small IT units in the different business areas looking after the specific needs. And of course, subsurface as well is very IT heavy. Uh, and uh, it is my accountability then to, uh, for instance, within the digit function, as we call it in EPI, digital and IT, to look at specific projects for that business area but also advice on cybersecurity and security of IT tools, infrastructure in the different countries where we operate and so on. And then I have the entire sort of subsurface portfolio with all the technology and all the entire toolbox that we have, which is, consists of uh, 350 plus applications. So it's, uh, it's quite a big chunk actually. <laughs> That is within my remit. Okay, and how big is, I mean, you say digital and IT, digit, where do you, what, what is for you the difference between digital and IT, or is that the same thing nowadays, and, 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 and how do you look at that? I haven't encountered a lot of analog IT lately, so for me, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really the same. It's, uh, I don't, when I started in uh, the CIO role back in 2015, looking back on sort of the, software component of technology development 
was perhaps 60%. Now it's way above 90%. So I just think it's an artificial division these days. Yeah. So it doesn't okay. matter to me what you call the baby, if it's technology, digital or IT. The point is to get the solutions in place to achieve the business uh, objectives. Let's talk a little bit about global strategic components of, uh, of your organization. Um, I can imagine, like you mentioned cybersecurity, must be very, very key, right? Because you don't want anybody to uh, hamper with your systems and, and, and take over control of your systems. That must be very, very key. Is cloud also a very important strategy in, uh, in your organization? Uh, yes, to both. Uh, we have an extensive cloud journey underway. We've been on it for a few years, still continuing. Mm -hmm. So uh, we also have a, a major partnership. I don't know if I'm allowed to mention suppliers here, Hendrik, but, sure. but uh, one of the things I put in place as CIO was uh, a strategic partnership with Microsoft, uh, which mm -hmm. uh, resulted in two new data center regions in Norway which was useful for Equinor, but perhaps even more useful for the entire Norwegian ecosystem of uh, suppliers and vendors and companies. So uh, yes, definitely a cloud journey. Cybersecurity is key for us as it is for any energy company, you know, due yeah. to the sort of geopolitical, financial importance of the energy sector, that's just a given. And of course, where we are now, and the fact that we are headquartered in Norway, we are also a key deliverer of uh, energy to Europe. We are um, an interesting target. Yeah. And do you see any changes lately of, I mean, over the geopolitical situation, let's call it, of, of, of 2022? Is there a higher alert uh, system in place? Is, is there more uh, uh, top-level attention to, uh, to security in general? What's the, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I, I think energy security has sort of come to the forefront for everyone. Mm -hmm. And part of an enabler for that is, is uh, cybersecurity. So I do think that it is top of mind for more executives now than it used to be. It, there's been a development over years, I would say, where cybersecurity has become more and more of a sort of executive committee board topic in most companies. And yeah. I think the recent geopolitical developments have just strengthened that. Okay. Also, you're since 2015, you're in the space of digital leadership and, and, and CIO and so on. So, so you are in a, in a very good position and you come from the outside. So you're in a very good position to, to look back seven years ago, today, and maybe also seven years in the future. How do you see the role of, of top digital leaders and CIOs changing? How, how is, was it seven years ago? How do you see it today? How do you see it in the future? No, I do think seven years ago, I think for many companies, IT was a commodity. It was a cost. It was something that, and I can speak from experience, when I was sitting in the leadership teams in the technology organizations, we had IT in, we discussed the IT budget. We said, good, cut it by 20%. And then we saw them again in a year. So that was one of the things I felt that was important to change to when I got the role to help uh, the IT function better explain to the business what opportunities technology could actually bring to realize their strategy. And I think that's not something that we did alone. I think that was a trend across the world where you've seen IT sort of move out of the basement and more into the limelight in a way. 
because mm. technology is such a big enabler for everything that we do these days. So you have to have leaders who in the business who at least are able to discuss with the technology organization, explain their needs. And on a corporate level, I think it's becoming more and more usual to have a technology leader in the C-suite, in the executive committee, uh, as we do, for instance, now with the chief technology officer. And I think that that puts some um, requirements on the CIO role. Mm -hmm. uh, I think being a good technologist is perhaps not enough anymore. You have to be able to be that translator between technology and business. So you have to understand the business and the business needs. And you have to be able to sort of put in place a strategy where you sort of scope and communicate the opportunities are and are able to sell them in. And I can imagine, especially in an energy company, I mean, it's, it's full of engineers there, I can imagine. Yes. So it's a very engineer-driven culture, everything very analytic and so on and so on. And then they bring you in with the, the, the relationship and the HR and, 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 the, and uh, sight and experience. Uh, so, so I think that is also what is changing, I think. I mean, uh, it's not, it used to be a CIO role, used to be a typical engineering role, but now it's, 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 a, it's a leadership role more than, than anything else, uh, I would say. So let's talk a little bit first about your, your, your management style and then mm. about your leadership style. So tell us a little bit about your teams that you have, uh, that you have developed. So what is the secret of your success in, in creating successful teams, maintaining them, retaining them, mm. making them happy and successful? And to me, actually, we have a set of leadership principles in Equinor that I have used very actively every time I've stepped into a new role. And mm. in short, they are shape, empower and deliver. Mm. And I always consciously think about that, when, both when it comes to sort of attacking the challenges of the role but also building the team. So together with the team, I try to identify some opportunities that we can address or some problems that we can solve to try to shape our future and be in a better place when we're sort of done. Mm -hmm. Then there's empowerment, which is also a key thing. I, I have to tell you a story about this, Hendrik, because when I came into IT from HR, I came from an organization where I knew everyone I had done mm -hmm. uh, almost all the key roles, so I could do any role. And I had been responsible for most of the big projects, so I had sort of full overview. Then I moved into an organization where I didn't know anyone. I had no idea what they had been up to for the last 10 years. And I had no sort of professional, what can I say, uh, education that sort of gave me credibility. Yep. So actually on the and you're going to laugh about this, but um, it tells you a little bit about the change in the CIO role as well. When the day when I was announced, the, my new team that I hadn't met yet, they were gathered around the computer, much like we are today in different locations, yeah. but, and were sort of waiting for to see who was the new CIO. And my name came up, and the first comment, they have told me this afterwards, was, <laughs> this must be a mistake. <laughs> so you were but very actually, welcomed. Oh, well, it wasn't a big problem, but it's back to the leadership part again, because you have mm -hmm. to come in and be clear about what you can actually offer, 
but also humble about the things that you do not know. And that gives you the opportunity for more empowerment. Because in my old role, I felt like I could, this is going to sound horrible, and maybe I was horrible at the time, but I felt I could do any job just as well as the person who was in it, because I had all that competence. And in this new role, I had to figure out what is it that I have that can help the teams, and how can I sort of clear the way and use their competence. So empowerment really became even more important to me when I stepped into a new area. And when it comes to deliver, having that requiring from yourself that you're actually able to see it through and taking the team with you and setting the right KPIs that we own together is also mm -hmm. important. And then I have, um, I don't know, we'll, uh, we'll probably, you'll probably ask me uh, interesting questions about me and who I am and so on <laughs> as we proceed here. But, but I am uh, sort of as a type, I'm pretty open, I'm pretty direct, mm -hmm. and I like to create a team where everyone can feel at home and everyone can feel safe. So having this, uh, what we uh, in Norwegian call refer to as a very high ceiling where everything is okay, but you have mm -hmm. your team is sort of, you're, we're out there fighting the good fight, you know, and, and when we need to tank up on energy or we need help, we come back to the team and that's where we sort of energize and before we move out again. I try to create that kind of environment. And can you give us an example on how the, the fact that you knew many, many people in the organization really helped you to be successful in, uh, in, in, in your role as CIO? Yeah, I, I do think, and that this is a quote from one of my previous team members. Uh, he said that, uh, we were unsure when you came in, Osil, but uh, actually now we think we can vouch for that the best uh, background to become a CIO is to be an HR professional. <laughs> uh, so actually, I think my network in the organization and my understanding of the business and how they uh, spoke and interacted uh, was key because a lot disappeared in translation. And I remember one specific um, incident. It was one in one of the first weeks I was sitting in a room with my team. We were discussing a proposal that we were going to give and one of the team's members said, oh, if only we could speak to X. And I was like, yeah, why can't we speak to X? No, that's not possible. We do not know him. I said, well, I know him. So I just called him and he came to the room and uh, we had a good discussion. And after that, they were like, wow. So having that network and, and those relationships of trust that you often get actually when you work in HR actually yeah. turned out to be quite useful, both for me and the team. So if I would go to your, your teams that you have been working with uh, for, for several years and I would ask them without you being present, <laughs> how they perceive you as a leader, what do you think that uh, people will say about you when you're not around? They would hopefully say that I'm quite good at setting direction, I'm open, I'm fairly flexible. Mm -hmm. uh, if they're really honest, they will also say that I can be quite annoying because I have uh, so much energy and ideas and I force them to do things uh, that they do not necessarily want, like make stupid videos and post them on Yammer and things like that. So uh, that uh, could also come up. But I do... Uh, know that many people, uh, I tend to, as part of uh, developing my team, also discuss with them when is the right time to 
leave and do something else and I always support that. Mm-hmm. But most of my, most of the people who work for me have uh, also said to me that they would love to come and work for me again in a different context if the opportunity should arise. So uh, I'm very fortunate to have had uh, strong teams around me and uh, I hope to have and I hope to again meet them in different sort of contexts and uh, setups. Now that we're talking about some of your characteristics, let's take a, a, a next step and, and you shared with us your MBTI profile uh, and uh, I know that you haven't been using that in, in Equino for, for ages anymore but still we love it as, as a way to talk about um, people's personality and characteristics. So in MBTI uh, you have scored yourself as an ENFJ. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a protagonist and, and this is a person with extroverted intuitive feeling and judging personality traits. And typically these are warm and forthright types that love helping others and that tend to have strong ideas and values and they back their perspective with creative energy to achieve their goals. Now, um, everybody has strengths and everybody has weaknesses. So um, I'm gonna challenge you a little bit <laughs> and, uh, and let's first uh, do the, the easy part. So people with an, uh, a protagonist profile They're typically receptive, they're reliable, they can be very passionate, altruistic as well, and charismatic. Can you give us maybe an example where that fits your your personality? Yeah, I think that's true. I have some some hobbies I'm very passionate about, like the reading, but I also have some Mm -hmm. cases that are close to my heart, like diversity and inclusion with the specific focus on women in tech, where I spend a lot of time and energy on them. on trying to improve that. So I recognize that. And I also recognize the extrovert dimension of it because I feel that I get a lot of my energy when I'm interacting with other people. Well, let, let me um, uh, pick up on, on that. You, you talked about women in tech being one of your uh, passions and, and where you put in extra effort and time. Tell us a little, more, a little bit more about what you do there exactly. Sure. Uh, it uh, helps that I work for a company that has a very clear policy on diversity and inclusion. And we actually have a goal in Equinor that by 2025, all of our teams should be diverse and inclusive. So I feel like I have a very strong sort of basis to build on. But... Uh, I do things internally, for instance, when we recruit graduates, I make sure that we uh, try to get as close to 50-50 as possible when it comes to genders in the technology graduates. I also make sure that my team is diverse, specifically with uh, gender, but also often with experience and other types of background. And externally, I really love um, doing volunteer work. So I'm engaged in the Think Tech Camps, which are targeting girls between 13 and 18. I typically go there and talk about technology and why it's so important, what the opportunities it brings. But also, perhaps my main point is how much more exciting it is to be a shaper of technology rather than just a proficient user, because teenagers all are these days. Mm-hmm. And I do uh, also do uh, together with uh, the UDA Women in Tech Network, one of Scandinavia's biggest networks for women in tech. I contribute into Girl Tech Fest, which is targeting younger girls, grade four and mm-hmm. five, 
uh, trying to sort of awaken their interest in tech, which is extremely rewarding. And I'm also in Equinor. I am the uh, business sponsor for our agreements, both with the, the Oda Women in Tech Network. So I'm very active there doing sort of different co-branded events, but also for um, the ADA agreement, named after ADA Lovelace, that we have with the Technical University in Norway, in Trondheim. Mm -hmm. And their goal is to not only attract more girls to ICT studies, but to actually keep them there. So we, yep. they have um, uh, an approach to that that I find fascinating. So I, I do spend quite a bit of my spare time on this topic. And I'm also a very active uh, and vocal, I would say, uh, speaker uh, on this. And, and also, uh, if you ever check my LinkedIn profile, you will see that I have many opinions around <laughs> women in tech uh, and uh, diversity and inclusion in general. And also uh, what annoys uh, me the most, this um, idea that we have to be perfect to be counted as successful. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, lots of uh, passion there. And do you see results? I mean, you've been working on this for uh, years because this is not an easy thing to change, to attract more uh, diverse and more gender diverse uh, women in, 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 in tech. Do you see results there? Do you see that you can bring your passion to these, uh, to these girls so that they also think of a career in, in technology? You know, this takes a long time. So you have mm -hmm. to be patient. And if, if I was only sort of counting, okay, I did this, where there are more girls in tech on this side, it's too early to tell actually. Mm -hmm. But I have to believe that what I do and what others do who are working with me will in the long term make a difference. Yeah. Because it's so important because basically what we have now is societies and organizations with fairly broad needs, but those needs are covered by developer teams who are not really representing the diversity of the organization. And, you know, that has some practical annoying implications, like the fact that my iPhone is too big for my hand or the VR glasses that I use don't fit my head. They just, I have to really work hard to make them work. But it also has a safety implication. Just look at, for instance, how you in car uh, crash testing use crash test dummies with male bodies. Mm -hmm. I don't have my organs in the same place because I'm smaller. So that basically means that I am, uh, I would be more prone to serious consequences if I were in an accident. So I just think it's really important to utilize the entire brain power of an organization, of a society on uh, addressing that society's concerns. Yeah. And then we need to use everyone, the women included in tech. And then a company like Equinor can, can play an important role in that, uh, I, I think, right? In, uh, I think so. In, yeah. You also, the other thing you, you just mentioned was, and I'm fascinated by that, that you read 200 books a year. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How the hell do you do that? Because that's almost, <laughs> From Monday to Friday, every day, a book. So how do you do that? Yeah. And, and what do you get out of that? I, for me, reading is in many ways an escape. 
That's why mm -hmm. I, I, I would read maybe 10 sort of professional books a year where, that, where I really have to sort of dive in and, and get something out of it. But for me, it's escaping to somewhere else. Either it's a spaceship or a fantasy world where I'm mm -hmm. uh, fighting the good fight with the female warriors or whatever it is. I, I just, uh, I enjoy it. And my, I have two teenage girls and they're completely fascinated. They watch me while I read on my Kindle and they don't understand why I read so fast. And I don't know myself either because I've never trained, but I, I suspect I have this weird hopping technique where I sort of just scan a few words and mm -hmm. I get the content that way. So it's not a problem for me to read uh, 200 books a year. What is your secret fantasy then? Because I mean, you are in HR and, 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 and CRO yeah. and digital leadership roles. If you would not be uh, limited at all and, on, on corporate careers and so on, what would be the perfect role for you in life? What's your, your secret fantasy, if, and if that's reflected by these books? <laughs> I don't have a, a word or a title for it, but it would be something... Of course, if magic was allowed, that would have to be part of the mix as well. But if not, it's something in the intersection point between data technology and people. I just find mm -hmm. that extremely interesting, uh, looking at how the trends are shaping up and how technology and humans become more integrated, how mm -hmm. organizations and leaderships also are changed as a consequence of technology becoming flatter. So, ooh, there are so many things I could have fun with in that space, I can promise you. But do you think technology is, is, is making our lives better? Can you escape in your books, and, and, and with other, many people escape in their phones, and they're on their phone uh, five hours a day. So is this uh, technology, digital, is that, a, is that a blessing or a curse in our lives? I think it's a double-edged sword to be Mm -hmm. Honest with you, I, f I see so many ways that you can apply technology for good. That's wonderful. I also think back to when the internet was born and, and all of the, the ideas we had around this being this enormous, interesting place where we would learn new things and be challenged on our views and so on. But instead, it's becoming more of an echo chamber where you, you just get your preconceived notions reinforced and, yeah. and technology is also that, that there are challenges with AI for instance and used in recruitment or selection processes for instances where we've had experiences where the AI was trained on male profiles so it automatically excluded women so it's not uh, sort of a, a clear street with only upsides you have to be conscious about it but I do believe that technolo without technology there is no progress. We just have to be conscious about how we apply technology and how we strike that balance between humanity and technology. Turn off the phones once in a while and focus on what's right in front of us. Back to your profile, um, Osil. Protagonist, the weaknesses. is, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Or let's call them the development areas. Because nobody's perfect and we all have to, um, to go through our professional, personal development. So potential weaknesses for people who are protagonists is that they can be unrealistic. They can be overly idealistic. Sometimes they can be condescending, talking down to people. They can be too intense or overly em empathetic. So which of these do you recognize that you had, of course, and, and how did you develop this? 
to, uh, to still be a top digital leader because you can't be condescending on people and, and, and still be a top leader. So which area are your development areas? I think I still have a few actually, Henrik, and one of them <laughs> is probably the intensity because I can become very interested in a subject, very passionate about it. And uh, when I start talking about it, it's hard for me to actually stop. I'm very aware of that <laughs> and I'm still mm -hmm. working on it. And I, I think perhaps, as you alluded to as well, that early in your career, you, you have all these sort of um, ideas and living a long life in an organization sort of plucks a bit of that off because you learn what is realistic and not realistic and you understand um, what you have to do to be able to deliver. So you have mm -hmm. to remember that I, I've been through a long journey already of development, but uh, I think that uh, continuing to develop is key to us all. And honestly, it's not really MBTI related, but when I started uh, my job in Equinor, it, it used to be a, about who knew the most, who were sort of the experts that you could mm -hmm. go to. But now I feel that we, everything is happening so fast that the ones that are going to succeed are really the people who can learn the fastest because everything's changing. And to me, that's uh, fascinating. Maybe I'm an optimist there as well, so it's not happening as fast as I think. But uh, yeah, I, from a personal perspective, I don't ever feel that I've arrived, that I've learned something, that I'm done. I still feel mm -hmm. that there's so much to learn, so much to explore. And that's part of what motivates me to keep going, actually. Let's take one step uh, further in this leadership deep dive and, uh, and let's dive a little bit deeper into what drives you because that's what we're after, right? And uh, so what I would like to ask you, uh, Asil, is what are your core values that you live by? And, mm -hmm. and you shared with us that you have uh, two wonderful girls, 15 and 17. What are the values that's that right. you're passing on to your children? Um, so what are really the, the more and most important values that you live by and you want your family to live by? To me, and I don't know how that came about, but what I've tried to teach my girls, and that's important to me, is that every person has a value, regardless of their role and occupation. Maybe it's because I worked in catering for all those years, because you, you were sort of at the lowest rung of the ladder and you were seen as the least important, but it was very clear to me then and now that if the catering staff hadn't been there with food and laundry and clean towels, uh, no one else could have been either, so it wouldn't have been possible to run the business. So I try to teach my girls to not judge people by the roles that they have, but mm -hmm. by the persons that they are. And that's always been important to me. The value of every person. Yes. And you know, you, you know, Hendrik, that's also something that I'm very conscious about because I've made that journey from the very start of the career ladder to the very high levels. And mm -hmm. I've experienced uh, and learned uh, how, how much of the attention you get is really about you and how much is about your title. So I, uh, I, don't have, uh, I don't put a lot of importance on titles when it comes to how I value people. To me, it's, uh, it's different things that I judge them by. And you have to remember that um, when you move up, you will also move down and you will meet all the people 
that you met on your way up. And I want, mm -hmm. that was very important to me to treat people uh, fairly and well and respectfully. And I've also tried to make sure that my girls have that same approach. Is there a price you have to pay to make an, uh, a serious career like, like yours, to go from all the bottom to, uh, to the top levels? What is the price you have to pay for this? Oh, the price you have to pay is, at least if you're not employing a maid, and I'm not doing that, is that sometimes when uh, you come home, it looks like uh, a major explosion has happened in your uh, house. Or that, uh, and I just wrote a LinkedIn post about this, instead of having fancy dinners on your dining table, it actually contains the clean laundry from the entire last week because you haven't had the time to fold it and no one else has either. So, of course, doing, uh, doing big roles has a price, but it also has an immense value, at least for me. Because mm -hmm. I, it became clear to me very early on that purpose for me is about making a difference. About leaving something behind that's better when I leave than when I got there. And I even lived by that when I was a catering assistant. You're, you're probably going to laugh now because it is kind of stupid. But every time I went into a cabin, I folded, put the towel in a specific place and folded it in a specific way so that it would be nice for the person who came back into his or her room. Because I felt, well, if I could do that, I could brighten their day. And of course, in the roles that I've had since, I've had a lot more impact. But... The basics of it is the same, wanting to improve something, wanting to leave a mark, wanting to make a difference. So that's been key to me. If you look back on your career, are there, were there important people, important mentors, people that you <laughs> learned from or important people that still today you look up to? Or that, and you, can you give an example or two? Sure, th there are several actually. I. Uh, I've worked for some really great leaders uh, during the years. Uh, some of them have uh, given me a kick in the butt when that was required. I can mm -hmm. remember one example. I was working in HR in uh, uh, corporate. I was very pleased with my job, just had my second kid, was not looking to leave. I'd been there for a few years, but just was very comfortable. And my leader at that point came and said that she wanted me to take on another role. And I said, no, not going to happen. She came again and said the same and said, you know what, if you tell me this again, I'm going to get really mad. Leave me alone. And uh, then a week passed and then I was called into a new meeting with her and the manager of the unit that they wanted me to lead. And then I actually took a deep breath and I thought to myself, Osil, if these two people who you respect think that this is the right move for you, maybe you should actually listen. So there was an important lesson in there about sometimes trusting the things that others are seeing in you. Because that job that I ended up accepting actually became the, the sort of stepping stone for a lot of the uh, executive positions I've had since. And I will say that perhaps if I'm allowed to mention names, that uh, I worked as head of HR in technology projects and drilling for four years for um, an executive vice president that was called Margaret Övrum, and she... Uh, she really was a hero of mine. Uh, mm -hmm. She didn't know it at the time, but I met her the first time when I was a catering assistant uh, at the gathering where she was speaking. And she was talking about an accident that had happened on her watch. A person had died and she was extremely emotionally moved by it. And I was so fascinated by this that 
this person that was sort of, from, for me, could have been from another planet, it was a top-level executive, that she actually dared to be herself. She dared to show that emotion and how much it meant to her and how much she had sort of thought about it. So I, I just really got to admire her immensely, immensely already then. And then I got the chance to work with her later on and she was just amazing. She was tough as nails, uh, but um, pushing you all the way to do better, but also you always knew that uh, she had your back. And then I have to mention my uh, perhaps most important mentor or hero. Unfortunately, she is long gone, but that was my grandmother. She grew up in very poor conditions with three brothers. She was the only one who was actually doing well in school. But since money was short, what was there had to go to educate her brothers. So she didn't, didn't get any schooling after the seventh grade. But she, when we were from, we were big enough to walk. She told us that you can do and be whatever you want. And she made sure that all of her three girls and one boy got a university degree and all of us grandchildren were given the confidence to think that we could do and be whatever we wanted. So there have been uh, quite a few uh, people in my life who have been important role models and mentors and, and shaped me like that. Important heroes even in your life. Yes, I would say so. <laughs> no, and I've, I've even used professional mentors at some points in my career. So Okay, let's talk about a bit more about professional uh, things and that is um, we all have our successes but we also have our failures and things that mm -hmm. don't work as we as we want them and so we should learn from our failures and we should um, celebrate our brilliant failures and, and, and especially if we can make a turnaround so can you maybe tell us a little bit of what you consider your most brilliant turnaround program and, and, and what you learned from that? Yeah, I can, I can definitely do that. I can't share all the details with you because it was a, a strategic confidential project, but I think um, the learnings will be relevant and I can be clear mm -hmm. about those. And I suspect that perhaps many have been in situations like this. You have a, a project, you've sort of done all the right things, you have the leadership anchoring at the top, you have the milestone plan, you sort of have everything in place and then you start rolling. And suddenly, when the milestones start to be reached, the deliveries are not coming. And uh, it was becoming a bit of a problem. We uh, followed up more closely. We sort of talked to the next layer of leadership. And this, we're still committed. this was a big IT project, right? Big IT yes, project. It, was, it was a big IT project. But suddenly it, it dawned on me that doing more of the same isn't going to help. Uh, so I actually initiated what we at that point in time called a stop, think, act exercise. Mm -hmm. And I started it off by calling everyone in uh, down to the leaders of the teams to a full day workshop. And I think honestly that everyone expected to be told off because we were getting a lot of heat from above because we weren't delivering as promised. But instead I just said, you know what? I'm not going to spend time on, on pointing fingers and assigning blame because there are things that I could have done differently, my team could have done differently, surely you could have done differently. What I'm interested in is understanding how, where do we go from here together to fix this. Mm -hmm. And we assigned a period of uh, four weeks to sort of focus on 
what was really the problem and how could we together identify a way out, knowing full well that that would mean an additional four weeks delay in delivery. But we still thought it was a chance that was worth taking. And we did a lot of hard work and took a lot of actions. We put in place a new technical solution to address some of the technical complexity that was part of it. We went all the way down to the individual teams and uh, tried to understand what is preventing you from delivering. And suddenly, even though we didn't know about it from before, we were told that they had lots of conflicting priorities, so we cleaned that up and made sure that there was a clear prioritization. We put in place a different follow-up mechanism where the teams actually were responsible themselves to help us design this and to fill it with content. And we actively used that so that if we, could, if we saw that several teams had the same problem or there was a challenge, we would immediately, on a daily basis, I was into this too, we would immediately go to the team and say, okay, how can we help? How can we help? And we involved not only the leadership level below me, but all the levels, all the way down into the teams, met with them regularly, had a huge communication effort. And after those four weeks, you were actually able to see it on the tracking that a turning point had happened. So we were actually able to, uh, to turn the whole thing around and uh, deliver uh, almost within the original deadline. So that was a big learning for me. First, sort of that the importance of sometimes taking the chance to do something completely different than what you're doing is not working but also the importance of going all the way down in the organization and understanding what the challenges are in the teams and how you can help clear the way for that. So uh, it was a really, really challenging at first and then mm -hmm. a great learning experience for both me and the people who were involved in it. Thank you for sharing that. So let's go back a little bit more to your uh, personal life. And... Um, could you tell us what was one of the best things that has ever happened to you in your life? I think having kids. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, it's the, the effect of that is that you have kids and it's a loving relationship and all that. But it was good for me because it um, took my focus away from myself. I think mm -hmm. I became a better leader, a better person uh, through having kids because you have to learn to cope with crisis, you have to get better at time management, you also have to prioritize more. And mm -hmm. you learn, in fact, that even though you think it before you have kids, that you are uh, irreplaceable at work, you're not. If uh, someone ran me over by a, with a bus tomorrow, I hope that a few people in Equinor would miss me for a while. But mm -hmm. the place where I can never be replaced is my family. So you learn to yeah. prioritize. So uh, that's why I think it's the best thing that happened in my life. The flip side of that is, is bad things that happened to us. Would you care to share maybe one of the worst things in, in your life that happened to you and, and, and what you learned from that? I actually think professionally one of the worst things was that example I just shared mm -hmm. with you because it was so high profile. We had a steering committee with only senior executives and we looked like yeah. idiots there for a while. So that was tough. And 
Could we? I'm, I'm trying to get to a personal uh, thing as well. <laughs> if, if, <laughs> no, if, then if I you think care to share. I think the most it ended well, but the most challenging thing I've been through is that uh, when I was pregnant with my oldest daughter in week 24, the water broke. So we actually thought that she was going to be born then and die. So I had to spend six weeks uh, first in hospital and then at home just lying flat, waiting. And I knew that that um, what I did could perhaps impact whether it would be okay or not. And I don't know if you noticed during this conversation, Hendrik, but I am by nature a very impatient person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. That was um, the fear there of having her die combined with that inability to do something because I'm also fairly action oriented. I'm used to sort of having a problem and then thinking about how I can solve it. The only solution here was just to lie still. That wasn't a difficult period, I can imagine. It was awful, but uh, everything turned out well. She is now 17. Uh, so. Uh, now I'm grateful for the learning opportunity because it taught me that I can do things that are completely against my nature if the reward mm-hmm. is there. No, so I think we, everybody is born with one specific gift in their life. Mm-hmm. That's uh, something that you can nurture, that you can develop. If you had to select one, what, what would your gift be in your life? I think what i appreciate most is that i was born an optimist so i don't Mm -hmm. really think that things will go completely wrong my initial sort of starting point is that the world is a good place people want you to succeed how if you fail you will learn from it so how bad can it be so so that has actually been i think a key key part of uh, my success, if you can call it that, that it, that it gives me this inner security, you know, to, to just go ahead because I think it's going to be okay in the end, regardless. Do you have a personal mantra if things go bad that, that help you, that uh, saying that uh, keeps you on track? I actually have two. One is, is very much related to what we spoke about. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So I do try to sort of focus on the learning opportunities of everything. When things, when I've had a really shitty day, I will sit down for half an hour for myself and, f- and go through, well, okay, what happened? Why did it happen? What can you learn from this? What should you not do again? I, the second mantra I have is actually a quote by Abraham Lincoln, which says that the best way to predict the future is to create it. Mm-hmm. I love that quote because it reminds me that it's actually up to me. I have the opportunity to shape my future, to shape what happens to me, to decide how to react to things and how to sort of be proactive. So I just love that quote. I use it a lot uh, to motivate myself when it's a little bit tough. But also um, when I talk to to kids, for instance, trying to um, create an image in their heads about what they can do. So I just think that's a very powerful message. Absolutely. What is it that you are most grateful for in your life? In my personal life, I have to say that it's my husband because he's always been my number one supporter. And he Mm -hmm. has himself taken uh, a backseat in periods uh, when it came to his career for me to be able to take the opportunities that were available to me. So 
-hmm. just extremely grateful for that and uh, for my entire family because they help uh, they help ground me and uh, in a professional sense I'm uh, I'm most grateful for my colleagues my team mm -hmm. having a team that sort of you can trust and that trusts you and uh, that support you but also challenge you when they feel that you're uh, on the way to making a stupid decision that um, has a big value for me so uh, that's part of what makes me go to work with a smile every morning. Last question for today, Osil, um, uh, and thank you so much for your time. It was really, really a pleasure to uh, talking to you and doing uh, do this leadership deep dive. Um, if you look back at your younger self, or if we look at people that are watching these videos that have the ambition to also become a top digital leader, what would your advice be uh, to them? I think I may have a couple of, of things there, actually, Hendrik. I think if I look back at myself, at the beginning of my career, I was a perfectionist. I wasted a lot of time on the last 0.3%. Don't mm -hmm. do that. Learn what is good enough. Trust your competence. Number two, uh, say yes to every opportunity that is offered. Sometimes you may not feel it's the right one. Sometimes you may not dare to apply because you don't think that uh, your uh, CV is uh, uh, sort of aligned with the expectations of the role. But if you believe that you have to dot sort of cross off every uh, requirement for a job, you're already overqualified. So stretch yourself, believe in yourself and go for it. Good. And also on that note, Thank you so much for your time. I look forward to, uh, to stopping by in Stavanger for a cup of coffee and to meeting you face-to-face. Uh, -face. It was really a pleasure. Thank you so much and see you soon. Thank you so much. I look forward to that.